Hello, welcome. Hello, welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the 50th podcast episode. Wait, I would imagine that you would have some kind of sound effect or jingle that's no. specific for no not, wow. I have, not, not for this your arm has been sleeping show. on the job lazy lazy man i actually tried uh, although i'm like deeply against the gig economy i tried fiverr for the recent jingle that i added the one about the absolutely technically feasible and um the guy like i, I wrote a terrible pitch what i wanted to have as a jingle and then three days later, uh, after the, uh, the guy accepted the job, he was just like, uh, yeah, actually, my uh, uh, computer broke. I can't do your thing. Uh, please cancel. So um, that put me off from <laughs> making more jingles on Fiverr. And uh, I'm just myself. I'm just too bad at it. And I don't really have the time. The 50th episode. Yeah, we're doing this for a while now. Um, over a year. I actually looked up... Um, <laughs> And have we improved? No. I mean, we, you, do we know what we're talking about more? No. You you can tell us. I uh, looked up the first episode that we did. Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. Um, this is the podcast where we talk about plants and why they're cool, and we use pipettes to figure out how they become so cool. We look at the molecular biology and explore the mechanisms behind the abilities of plants. With me today is Tegan. Hey. And I'm Joram, and I learned this uh, text by heart. No, actually, I just read it from here. <laughs> also, why am I with you? Like, that just makes me sound like the sidekick. I'm not okay with that. <laughs> yeah, that was the very awkward beginning of our very first uh, episode um, a year ago, when we still could see each other face to face because there was no corona, and we also lived in the same place, like in the same city, not the same house. So the original idea, we, we talked about plants and pipettes like, what, four years ago or something ridiculously long ago, and then mm. it never happened. And then it was going to happen, and then Yoram bought a house, and then it was going to happen again, and Yoram was like, oh, actually, awkward thing, I, I'm having another life, big life movement, I'm getting married. And then, like, we kind of, like, and then I was writing my thesis at one point, and I'm like, I just cannot. Yeah. Um, And then it came back again, and you wanted to do the podcast, and I wanted to do the writing part, um, because you know voice for silent movies well you know they say like face for radio what's the <laughs> the vocal equivalent of that um a, a voice for photos and here we are so this podcast is a bit weird because yoram has decided that it's going to be q a based um plus some weird games that he made me do and he also did um but we we have even less structure than normal because this is all we're, we're more confused than we should be in fact so here's the thing that we that I came up with for this uh, for this episode, which is very special and something that nobody has ever done before, is that we play a little game, and um, let's start by professing the fact that the game is going to be a very nerdy game. Like, yes. just keep your expectations. And there's, I thought there would be prizes, but apparently also no prizes. The, the rules of the game are um, that I came up with. Or that I, I looked for papers, or we both looked for papers, and we always tell like three summaries of an abstract. Um, one of them is true, and two of them are fake. And the other one of us has to guess which one is true, um, or, or call out the fake ones. Um, and the prize the the winner gets uh, in uh, internal bragging rights uh, for this podcast of winning this complicated game. And I have no idea. Uh, how well like how easy it is um what i came up with so i have a couple of rounds you also prepared something 
and um, yeah, I I summarized an abstract, and so and I didn't read the full paper because I'm very lazy. So you can ask hmm. me some questions, but I can o only answer them as far as they um, were answered in the abstract. Um, and okay, in fairness, I barely read the abstracts, and also I think my papers were all behind a paywall, and I just could not be bothered going to look for them. Um, but we're also going to go backwards and forwards with some listener questions. So yeah. I can start with a listener question from the very beginning. Somebody from Facebook, um, Kishore, asked this question, which I'm going to make Yoram answer. <laughs> yes. Because uh, I don't know the answer. Um, how to avoid bugs on plants. They're destroying my plants. Yoram, over to you. Uh, yeah, I, I wish I, I knew. We just planted some parsley and dill on the balcony in one of the boxes and it's completely infested with green lice. Um, Aphids? And completely covered with that. I, I wish we I would know what to do against them, apart from bringing in ladybugs, which is something yeah, that we like will do. Yeah, I feel like you've got your answer there. Find ladybugs. Like, done. I mean, there's also... Kill the all the birds, because the birds are probably eating by a lot of cats. The cats will eat the birds. That will stop the birds from eating the ladybugs. The ladybugs will then eat the aphids. It's like, it's biological control. It's a very complex form of biological control, but it starts with buying cats. But you also have to uh, make sure that there are no ants because the ants um, farm the aphids so they will kill off the ladybugs as well. They will protect the aphids so that they oh. can still milk them for, like, I think they then sort of massage them and get the sap from the aphids uh, in turn. So if you, like we have in the garden, we have a lot of ants. And um, so from what I read, I haven't actually tried it yet. The, if we bring in ladybugs, then the ants will just fight them off um, to protect the aphids. So you first kill the ants, then you bring in the cats. In all seriousness, I mean, the general problem here is that you need to know what bug is affecting your plants before you can do anything. And then there are kind of a different range. And if you don't know what the bugs are, one of the easiest things to do is to like physically inspect the plant. But if you yourself can see something, but you don't know what it is, there's a lot of really great forums online where you can just show photographs, even of the symptoms of the plant, not of the actual bugs themselves if you can't see what's happening and people can say oh this is not a bug this is just nitrogen deficiency or yes this is indeed a spider mite that is eating something yeah um and then yeah and then you have different steps depending on what you have so like one of the simplest things you can do is like manually remove things by just physically washing the the leaves with water or maybe with like lightly detergent water or then using kind of some like oils or like different mixtures depending on what the bugs are but again like this all and this you can ramp up all the way to like spraying them down with the strongest chemicals you can buy from the shop so it all depends on what the bugs are to start with and then also what you're willing to do because hey if it's tomato plants that you want to eat maybe don't spray them with ddt but yeah <laughs> like yeah yeah that's as helpful as we can be i think yeah. sorry it's back on you <laughs> we're no. completely unhelpful <laughs> yeah but it's it's with many gardening things it's experience trying things out and um yeah from from what i've heard especially when you don't want to use very harsh chemicals um you have to do trial and error i remember when i was a kid we had a um, vegetable garden and they said you should plant a row of marigolds around the edge of the vegetables because snails don't like marigolds and therefore they will like not be able to come into your vegetable garden because there's effectively a fence around and the snails just ate my marigolds and i was really really angry i was like this is bullshit <laughs> okay um let's play the first game shall we i yes. think yoram you go first because i only prepared one of them yeah and just as a reminder uh, the things that are fake about these stories are, can be just like 
details of it not not uh, tiny details but parts of the story can be true so uh, if i say something about photosynthesis and you know that photosynthesis exists doesn't mean that the whole story is true um so first round uh, story one is called gene mixer when two do i need to write notes if you want to um i can also summarize the things again uh okay let's go gene mixer gene mixer when two plants like each other very much they undergo sexual reproduction they create pollen and egg cells with only half the genetic information using meiotic division when where pollen and egg cell reshuffle the genetic information during meiosis chromosome pairs cross over which is a major driver of evolution and important in plant breeding as it leads to new combinations of genetic material Usually, crossover happens between one and three times per chromosome to increase the potential reshuffling of genetic material. Researchers mutated a single gene in a number of crop species and increased the number of meiotic crossover by threefold. Using this single regulator in combination with tools like CRISPR could greatly increase genetic diversity in crop varieties. That's the first story. Mm -hmm. uh, the second one is called Midnight Nitrogen Snack. Nitrogen availability drives the growth rates of pretty much every biome on Earth. Most plants get their nitrogen from nitrates in the soil that were fixed by bacteria. Some others, mm -hmm. like legumes, directly use symbiotic bacteria to fix nitrogen. The symbiosis is energetically costly, and so it was hypothesized that it is regulated in some way to avoid draining the energy reserves of the plant when it doesn't actually need nitrogen. In this study, researchers analyzed the rate of nitrogen fixation in several legume species and found the main regulator nitrate availability in the soil if there is enough nitrate available the plant reduces the flow of sugars to symbiotic bacteria in the roots which in turn turn down the level of nitrogen fixation this happens in uh, even in highlight when the plant has a large pool of available sugars and the uh, third one is antenna carpet Photosystem 1 is very important in photosynthesis i should know i'm writing a thesis about this for like five years <laughs> um, it is the second photosystem in the photosynthetic electron transport chain and the topic of many extended PhD projects. In higher <laughs> plants, a single belt of antenna proteins collects sunlight and channels the excitation energy towards the reaction center. In the alga chlamydomonas, we talk about this a lot, uh, the antenna is present in a double belt, like, uh, likely due to the lower light intensity underwater and the resulting need to gather more light with a larger antenna. In this study, researchers discovered that in the Moss Fiscometella uh, patents, the light harvesting antenna proteins actually are present in a continuous carpet, sort of. The antenna is shared between multiple photosystem one reaction centers, most likely to distribute excitation energy and avoid overloading the photosynthetic machinery. So these are the three stories. Gene mixer, um, a single gene mutation leads to much more reshuffling uh, during meiosis. Midnight nitrogen snack, um, nitrogen uh, or plants control the rate of, of their symbionts um, through sugars and it's driven by the nitrate availability in the soil and the antenna carpet. Photosystem 1 in uh, Fiscometrella patents has a, a carpet of antenna that is shared by many reaction centers to distribute energy. Now questions. I need to ask you questions. If you to want to, or you can out. just uh, straight up say which one you think is true. Uh, wait, one of them is true, mm -hmm. and the two other ones are false. Yes, I think the nitrogen snack is true. Nitrogen snack is true. Why? Um, because I I think this like there has to be regulation of how much um, interactions are formed. It makes sense. It is costly. 
And I think that the plant is selfish. It makes sense to me that the plant is selfish in this case. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he, he's like, I can get enough nitrogen because, like, the fungus is invading, but in this case, is often the plant is kind of setting up these nodules which make the home for the fungus. So I believe that the plant has the control at that initial, like, they can just say, I'm not going to set up the homes. So I believe that that, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah. Um, any of the other two could also sound true to me, though. So I, I don't know very much about meiosis. I like. I don't know if this entire story is untrue. Yes, there are crossovers. I'm not sure how many crossovers there are per chromosome. I'm not sure if it's one to three. I mean, it does make sense. It should be at least one um, per chromosome, but I can imagine it's a lot more, um, even in the condensed stage. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm not sure if it would be mutation of a single gene that would increase the crossovers. Maybe you have to um, knock down a whole pathway for that. So this is some things that could be false there. So the other the other facts there that yeah, um, crossovers do drive evolution. This is this is true. There are crossovers. I don't know how many. Um, yeah, I don't know how many genes you would need to mutate. And it does sound like a really cool trick if you could increase crossovers. Um, I also think that breeders might be interested in something where they knock down a gene to prevent crossovers. Like I can imagine that they don't want crossovers to make um, it easier to segregate certain lines that they know are interesting. So I could imagine that this story could have been reversed. Um, Yeah. And then with the antenna carpet. So there's this belt of light harvesting complexes around photosystem one, which kind of move... Um, from photosystem one to photosystem two, that one's obviously false because you said photosystem one is is the second photosystem, but it's it's called photosystem one. So why would that even be? <laughs> um, <laughs> one Very of the most call. frustrating thing about the photosystems <laughs> is that photosystem two, the first photosystem, is called photosystem two. Yeah. Um, and I think moss carpet is kind of cool. Uh, it sounds fun, but actually, I don't know anything about this. I. Do mosses even have... Yes, they must have the light harvesting complexes. They don't have anything else. They are in between. No, I can erase that. Like, yeah. It's true that they, they do have photosynthetic complexes and so on. So yeah, the, sure. it's, it's not that <laughs> it's, different. Yeah, I, but I, I, I mean, I don't know how you've... I can't guess of any way how this story would be altered. Um, so what did you say in the end? That there was a carpet of these um, antennas... Um, and each antenna was feeding into multiple photosystem ones and they were kind of all grouped together. That's what you said? Um, yeah, there, there was a carpet of the antenna proteins um, and then you have sort of interspaced in this sort of carpet, you have the reaction centers sitting. Um, similar to like in photosystem two, um, and this is true, like what I'm saying now, like I'm, I'm, I'm not definitely not lying when I talk about photosystem two. That it, there is a there are conditions where they can form semi-crystalline arrays, where they sort of mm. all of the photosystem twos hunch together and form this like big uh, array that shares all the excitation energy between them. So it's evenly distributed. Uh, so you can't uh, photosystem two is very sensitive to photo damage, so to damage uh, due to highlight, and um, this way it's sort of. Um, yeah, they they share the load, so no, no single reaction center gets overloaded. Hmm. Uh, in the nitrogen snack, the nitrogen snack, it could be possible that nitrate availability is still a signal, but they don't change the sugar amount. 
um, that yep. there's something else that they do to stop the. It's not the sugar amount, or the sugar amount is is st- like still sent in highlight, but there's some other method of stopping this. This could also be fake. There's like there's elements of each of these stories that could be fake, and I'm not really sure um, <laughs> what it is. Okay, tell me what the answer is. Um, so it's not the midnight nitrogen snack. That's one of fake. Uh, that one is fake. Yeah. Um, What's fake about it? Fake about it is uh, I switched around. So nitrate available availability in the soil has nothing to do with the um, the control. It's the light intensity. So it's regulated. Um, in higher light, they sort of channel more sugars to their symbionts uh, to get more nitrate in turn, and in low light, uh, the opposite. While mm-hmm. the nitrate availability in the soil in this study seemed to have no effect on the regulation of the symbiosis. So, okay, um, cool. Yeah, the the soil can be very well fertilized. The plant is still happily sharing its sugars as long as it has enough because of uh, the light intensity. And if the plant doesn't have enough sugars because of low light, then it also doesn't give as much uh, to to its symbionts. Um, So that one is fake. And uh, the other one that's fake is the antenna carpet. Um, It's photosystem one in Fiscometeta patens is different. It has a specific antenna um, composition, but it's also a double belt similar to Klami. Uh, it's just attached in a different way to the reaction centers. So this was what, uh, where I got this uh, inspiration from, from this paper. So it is true that um, there is just one single gene that you have to mutate to increase uh, the number of crossovers by threefold. There was a study uh, it's called Unleashing Meiotic Crossovers in Crops by Muley at in nature plants 2018 um, and the basics uh, are here it, it was already known in arabidopsis that there are three genes uh, fancm rec q4 and fig l1 um, that in arabidopsis influence the crossover event number and then um, in this study they transform transferred this knowledge to rice pea and tomato and knocked out the genes there all three of them and they could show that just one of them the rec q4 i think um, is enough to increase the crossover by threefold which is then yeah which means that whenever you cross two species you get um, more intense mixing of the genetic information uh, uh, in this knockout condition and that yeah, leads to potentially more interesting uh, offspring. Then, mm. And you can also break up, sometimes you have clusters of genes that are sitting close together, but you sort of want to separate them because you only want part of that in your next line. And if you only have one, two, three breaks uh, or crossovers, um, usually these will always stick together. And it's also mm-hmm. more likely when it's close to the centromere that these will stick together. So if you just increase the number of breaks introduced and crossover events, then the chances are just higher that you will eventually break this part, this these, this cluster apart and just transfer uh, one block of it to the next generation. So yeah, round one. Very cool. Uh, dun, point dun, for me. Dun. <laughs> Point for you. Um, okay, so I have a question from Jana from Facebook. Um, she actually is kind of associated with our old institute. Um, and she asked a lot of very good questions, which I think kind of come up quite often mm-hmm. in science, especially in research. But the first one is a more basic one, which is 
what was your motivation to go into plant science and to kind of keep hanging on? My motivation was um, that I did an ex exclusion principle. Uh, I was studying <laughs> biotechnology back then uh, in, in Berlin. And in, in the Berlin approach to biotechnology at the university here, you pretty much have two or three fields. You have um, micro, like uh, basic research in microbiology, so fungi, fungi and bacteria. Then you have applied microbiology, so you go into industry and you make beer or uh, like any micro um, mi microbiotic production process. Or you go into the medical field and you do basic research in the medical sector. Uh, and I didn't want to work with fermenters, so anything with micro micro uh, organisms. Microorganisms, that's what I'm missing. <laughs> Any work with microorganisms uh, fell flat. I didn't want to do that because f I had a couple of practical experiences with fermenters and they're just stainless steel tanks that you drop your stuff in and then you have a computer program that runs it and then you harvest your stuff. And I Okay, it's not for you is the point. <laughs> it's not for me. And, uh, for no disrespect to anybody who likes that, but it's not for you. <laughs> I mean, I know I'm like baking bread and making beer and all of these things that apply these, these, this stuff. But back then, didn't care for it. And in medical um, biotechnology, I would have had to kill mice or use um, chicken egg embryos and, and stuff like that. So work with animals and I didn't want to kill animals. Um, and so... I looked for other places where there's biotechnology and in Potsdam there was an, a small uh, unimportant institute that nobody knew about, <laughs> the Max Planck Institute that had a group working in biotechnology and so I applied there. First I, I went to a different university, did a, like a project on plants there, and then I applied there for my PhD and that's how I ended up in plants and over time I fell in love with plants. I have to say in the beginning I didn't really care for them. They were just like the l l lessest, so the smallest evil um, mm. But by now, I think they're really, really cool. And I don't regret a thing like going into plants. Yeah, so for me, I, um, yeah, I was always really into science growing up, but more from a conservation biology point of view. And that's actually um, my intention my whole life was to be a conservation biologist. Um, and I loved biology in school, but I didn't really like chemistry and I didn't like physics. I didn't like um, kind of these harder sciences um, but then in my first year of uni, I had a really amazing professor who was teaching biochemistry 101. And this guy was legendary at my university. I was super lucky to have him teach me before he retired a couple of years later. And from that point, I was like, wow, I want to know more about this side of it, the molecular side, and this is biochemistry. So I went into university. Um, again, I was very lucky to be in a university where the first year was quite broad. You could just do like bio 101 like maths 101, chemistry 101, physics 101. And then in the second year, you could choose what you actually wanted to specialize in. So based on this really amazing professor, basically, um, I thought, okay, I'm going to do not just conservation biology, but conservation biology and biochemistry. Um, and then over time, I became a little bit um, disillusioned by conservation biology, partially because where I grew up, it's really a mining centered town. So there's a lot of possibility for disappointment if you're a conservation biology in that context um but also uh i found that conservation biology in the context the local context it often involves focusing on one single animal and studying and trying to save that 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 very endangered animal and i wanted to understand like deeper broader questions so i mean if you study Arabidopsis, yes, you're just studying the species Arabidopsis thaliana, but you're finding out knowledge that theoretically is about 
all species instead of focusing on like the aim of studying Arabidopsis is not to understand Arabidopsis it's to understand all plants mm. um, and then in my third year I had to do a third year project and by basically random assortment of chances I got put in a lab where they were working on some DNA uh, some RNA editing um, and that guy was just a really great supervisor and from there I kind of carried on with the plant so I, I had already taken a bit of a plant attitude before then but that really focused me more on plants and this more um, the more DNA RNA which is molecular biology side of it as opposed to the more biochemistry protein extraction and isolation side of it um, yeah so that was kind of it and then yeah moving in I I just loved it. I loved that, yeah, you can get this really broad view and plants are just so much more important. I mean, for me, I find understanding how plants work is more meaningful to me than understanding like disease and cancer, but that's uh, that's just my own personal perspective. Like that's yep, yep. how I feel. I, I, I don't know that that's objectively a truth. It's just like, I find it very interesting. Yeah, for me, yeah. As, for me as well, when I look at other disciplines, um, also like in biology, but like um, medicine, uh, human biology, or people working with zebrafish or other like common uh, model organisms, I sort of get the excitement for it. And I can see how that can be a very interesting topic. But I never looked at any of these projects. I was like, I wish I would have worked with Drosophila um, or any of the other mm -hmm. things or uh, like... I enjoy hearing about them and learning about these things, but my heart beats for for plants right now. Uh, yeah, which is really weird because like house plants, I don't really care for them. Um, although I started now, like the first thing that I planted uh, since I left the lab where I had to do, and we had gardeners where really rarely I had to plant my own things. Um, but that was the last time I planted something. And now I actually transferred a basil that I bought from like the store store soil thing to proper soil with proper fertilizer and so on to have more and happier basil. you're pretty much a farmer now uh, yeah which was it was weird because it, i i got flashbacks back to the greenhouse where i would like pick plants and put them from <laughs> plates on soil um and have have them grow there so like this hazy remembrance of a past life <laughs> yeah but now i, I can, have to say like also for myself i deeply don't care about humans how humans function and i think that's like <laughs> a di just a difference in in personalities where like even when i was younger like you could choose between biology and human biology and human biology was understanding how our own bodies work and biology was understanding more ecosystems and and like biological processes and i had just no interest in human biology and even now like <laughs> people love chimpanzees and dolphins because they're like humans and to me that makes them really boring like i would much rather hear about like the obscure like i don't know slime mold that lives on the bottom of the computer dish i don't know like this yeah. is more interesting because it's more different and like the diversity is what amazes me and like yeah. the way everything interacts as an ecosystem amazes me like yeah from the human point of view i i'm interested if it's like oh humans have all these like yeah microorganisms living in their gut that do th that's cool to me but like oh your heart beats uh, it's it's fine like i think it's important to know this stuff like <laughs> i am alive because other people care about this and we have the medical ability to keep like to keep me alive i'm really grateful but i do not i do not have the interest yeah yeah so it's safe to say we love plants which is good for yeah. two people who run a website about plant science <laughs> should we ask another question or did you want to go um, to no we can ask another question Okay. Um, 
Have you got questions? I have one question. Should you want to ask one? I can ask yeah. one. Mine is from Twitter. It's from Rhizoid on Twitter. Um, and he or she, so they say, I have a very basic question. Why are plants green? Should, should not black plants uh, that use all wavelengths for photosynthesis have had an evolutionary advantage? And is there a reason why the green part of the spectrum and not any other color is reflected? Um, yeah, so I looked a little bit into it and had uh, some thoughts on my own. Do you have some ideas why plants are not just black? Why don't they just take up all of the light and get all of the energy and have enough energy to move around and so, uh, like be stronger than humans and animals and everything? I have no idea. Um, wow. I probably should have thought about this before. Um, <laughs> I can make up two two possible things. Yeah. Like that taking up too much energy is dangerous. This is one one option. So you want to minimize your wavelengths because if you take everything, then you get basically overexcitation and like you, you blow things up. You can't physically move the electrons that you've captured fast enough um, and they basically just cause like damage. Um, yeah. So that's one possibility. Um, like also a filtering possibility. I think if you have black, you don't have the same kind of filtering options um, throughout like the leaf density you would have like one layer but that's also an opacity not a color thing yeah um i could also imagine something based on the atmosphere of the environment that plants evolved in so if like things are evolving like single-celled algae in a liquid environment it's just more likely that certain wavelengths get through um and so like things that evolve at the bottom of the ocean they tend to only see blue light and they've developed to have um responses to blue light so for example some of the glowing organisms they glow under blue light um yeah. but not under other lights um and then the other thing would be uh just kind of a, a physical or chemical limitation of the machinery itself like it might just not be possible like i mean so we have these really amazing and beautiful photosystems which have these these chlorophylls which grab the light and it might just not be possible to have a molecule that takes up everything i mean i guess you would need a combination of different i don't know if like one molecule could do that like one i mean you could technically just sequester some elemental carbon which is purely black and like plants no no, no but like and then to, to still have the absorbing qualities i think is the question right so yeah. like instead of only absorbing great like yeah i'm not sure sorry yeah, this no no <laughs> but you touched on on many things and like first thing is like we don't have a good answer it's always hard when you ask something like why did it not evolve in this or that direction i mean evolution doesn't go towards a goal evolution doesn't try to hit like the objective best solution it goes along a path where like with every small iteration it tries to be better than the previous iteration but the path can lead to many different outcomes and if it goes and often there are like local minimums in the way so then yeah. if you fall into the best in one scenario you then can't get to an even better that's a little bit further away because you're in a like a local yeah. valley of yeah yeah so that that's the first thing so um maybe on a different planet and a different system where things had like different starting conditions they might have by chance evolved to be to be completely black that's the first thing um but there's a couple of reasons why it might not be the best and one of them is definitely the overloading of the system um so r right now plants on a very sunny day, plants already have to quench 
uh, uh, quite a large amount of the energy that comes in so they don't get overloaded. So they have a lot of protective mechanisms in place um, that deal with excess energy. Yeah, and we kind of do see that naturally in plants where like if they get too much light, they start creating um, different things that absorb the wavelength. So like carotenoids or um, anthocyanins, this like purpley color you see on plants. So they they basically put other colors on top to block the light before it gets to um, their photosystems. Yeah, so that means already that you can't easily get the downstream machinery to work fast enough that you can deal with all of the incoming energy. And that's why there was never a need to get more energy in um, because you have already, like downstream, you can't handle all the energy. So that's one reason. Another thing is if there would be black, yeah? I think that's also something that we do talk about when we talk about crop improvement as well, right? So the the problem isn't that there's not enough light coming into the leaf. The problem is that the system is not efficient enough to turn that light into fixed carbon by so like we always talk about rubisco being kind of too slow an enzyme um or so at the moment when we talk about yeah, like optimizing crops, it's not about making them get more light, it's about making them use their light to make and we have to see that like the enzymes in involved in photosynthesis they are already pretty extraordinary there's hardly any like um inorganic chemical um compound that can do better than for example the photosystem 2 in terms of reduction power that it can do like there's mm. like splitting water chemically at room temperature with just sunlight is something that's technically very hard to do so these things are already uh, optimized to a great degree so there's probably not much room left where the plants could evolve to just from physical constraints just from the physics of uh, excitation energy taking going into the photosystems and then splitting water for example and then moving all of these electrons so yeah plants probably have only very limited uh, headroom uh, where they could improve with the, the electron flow. The other thing, if they would be completely black, they would heat up very quickly. Um, if mm. if you have, if you imagine any black surface in, in the sun, they easily get over 60, 70, 80, 90 degrees Celsius. And most enzymes denature at that point. Um, I mean, there are some things. There's a, I, when I researched this, the, uh, I found some thermophile cyanobacteria that can uh, live up to 80 degrees Celsius. So they can do photosynthesis at a very high temperature so technically you could imagine their uh, their enzymes could deal with sort of a black uh, uh, alga that can take all of the energy and then heat up um, but they they don't really grow that far uh, that, that quickly and so on so there, there will be other trade-offs there and also when it's very hot and if you imagine a land plant that um, is completely black and it's very hot um, it will draw a lot of water through it just by, because the water evaporates so quickly. So it will increase the water demand for plants and so on. Um, so that's another reason reason why plants probably wouldn't do so well if they would be completely black, at least with the with the in the environments that we see them now. You could always imagine that, like in a hypothetical world, they would be black and then only in spaces where they are pretty much directly in the sea where they can draw as much water as they want they then be um uh, they can survive they still salt water not so helpful yeah um yeah but i mean you also see that in the wild so you see that 
there's very different types of plants depending on the environment. So you have much deeper, darker green leaves and, of course, larger leaves as well in plants that live in forests, kind of in the understory. So something like a Monstera, he's used to being shaded and he needs to make himself as dark green as possible to get a lot of light. On the other hand, if you go to Australia, you see these leaves which are basically not green they're like pale gray with like a tiny tub of um green and they're also very shiny they have these thick wax coatings which help protect water loss but also basically try and reflect as much of the sun as possible so they yeah they really don't want to be darker they're they're basically trying to minimize how much light they take in because it's just overpowering down there And the last um, thing here to consider is that when you have a molecule that can absorb uh, energy uh, or light energy, it has only three physical ways that it can get rid of it. First one is fluorescence. So it takes a photon and then emits a photon of a longer wavelength. Um, this is something we see in chlorophyll and in other fluorescing compounds. You have chemical conversion, which is the transfer uh, of the excitation energy to a different molecule. And this is what's happening with, uh, with chlorophyll as well so it does these these two things and finally there's heat it can just like radiate radiate the energy off as heat and there's a physical link between the absorption spectrum of a, of a compound and which of these three methods it prefers so if you have something that can only um accept a very narrow band of light uh, then it's most likely to give Uh, give away the energy by doing fluorescence um, while if, if you have a very broad spectrum that can be absorbed then it's most likely to be uh, sent out, sent away as heat and if you have something in between then you get the the compounds that can do chemical conversion that can actually use the end like transfer the energy to other um, molecules the excitation energy and that's where chlorophyll sits in sort of this in-between thing between these two extremes and that's also a reason why I probably the, um, can't go much broader because then it it would favor just the the emission of heat instead of the chemical conversion into into yeah chemical energy and um, that wouldn't help the plant much uh, it can't it couldn't grow on on just heat and that's why the absorption the the pigments um, are sitting somewhere in this this range between these two extremes. And uh, mm -hmm. to close off, there's uh, many examples of things that are not green and still photosynthesized. There is like red algae, alga that uh, red algae that um, have red pigments. Um, there's blue algae, and there's also black plants. Um, I only found one uh, plus uh, plus one um, article on on black plants. I'm just it doesn't load right now, so I I forgot to note down which species species it is. But I think it was sort of a Uh, monocots like some some grassy type thing that's completely black uh, so it does exist but it doesn't seem to be that much of an evolutionary advantage otherwise we would see this guy overgrowing everything else uh, we link to that in the in the show notes um, to uh, also another page that goes through a couple more like answers to the questions why our plants are black so yeah Big answer. I just bought a begonia that is supposed to have black leaves. I mean, honestly, obviously it's not going to have fully black leaves, but it's got dark, dark, dark leaves. It's very pretty. Um, yeah, uh, it's called Ophiopogon planiscapus nigrescens. Um, and yeah, 
put it put the link in the show notes and you just see you have to lease it to me it looks like a maize blade like a, a leaf from maize plant and one of them is just like black and the other one is green um so it, they do exist uh yeah so maybe we do something about this uh on on the blog or the podcast in the future because i think this is interesting um to explore so yeah that's that's my question um sh shall we do another round do you want to do your round or shall we do one of my rounds i can do my one good yes yes okay so i chose three papers from nature that came out in 1988 what's the significance of the year 1988 we were both born there and when was wonderful things burst into the world much better time no the 80 yeah. 80s not so great but not not great for anybody who was but not a it, middle class white man. It gradually got better because we were there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the first one is the evolution of flowers with deep corolla tubes. And this is basically the idea that Darwin himself was wondering why some flowers are very, very deep. So basically they have these really kind of deep um, channels which mm -hmm. the nectar is at the bottom of them. And he said, this is an example of evolution. And it's not just evolution, it's specific type of evolution where you have a kind of arms war or race between two creatures. Mm -hmm. And he argued that the race was between the flowers themselves and the insects. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason the tubes were so long is because the flowers know that the insects are lazy and if they can put their tongue in only a little bit of the way and they still have extra tongue left, they're not going to like go all the way into the flower and get themselves covered in pollen. Mm -hmm. So basically, if the, if the tube isn't long enough to force the insect to go all the way into the flower before he dips his tongue in, the, the insect will get the nectar and it won't pick up the pollen. So it won't then actually do its job of pollinating. Um, And in the wonderful year of 1988, when we were born, there was a publication in Nature that basically showed that this was the case. Um, they could show that insects that had, um, like, there was a, sorry, there was a reproductive loss for flowers that had artificially shortened um, uh, corollas. So the scientists basically, mm -hmm. like, put a cut on the corolla and they saw that the insects were in fact lazy and those flowers lost out. Okay, so they would get less pollen on the insects and, the fl and so the flowers or these plants with the shortened corollas uh, would just have less offspring because its pollen would be yeah, less there distributed. Yeah, there was a correlation between the, the depth of the flower and the female fitness, which mm -hmm. they measured as how much fruit was formed. Mm -hmm. Okay, number two discovery is um, an antisense charcoal synthase gene in transgenic plants, which is inhibiting flower pigmentation. Mm -hmm. So um, they were looking at Petunia hybrida, which is just your standard Petunia um, flowers, and a specific metabolic pathway, which is flavonoid synthesis. Um, and chalcone synthase specifically is an enzyme that's made in the flower, um, in the corolla, which we just talked about, and the tube and the anthers. And these scientists used um, an antisense expression of this chalcone synthase gene. Um, they tried it in both petunia and also our, our beloved um, tobacco. Mm -hmm. And they found that by expressing this 
anti-sensor. And anti-sensor is basically the opposition of the, the RNA. So it binds to the RNA and kind of lets it get degraded or, or blocks it in some way. And they found that by overexpressing this anti-sense, um, they were then losing amounts of the RNA and then losing amounts of the enzyme itself. And this was a kind of um, nice experiment because the output was pretty pigmentation changes in the flowers. So um, they could also show that this antisense um, for the synthase gene that they put into the genome, it could be stably inherited because they had put it um, there. So they could have mm-hmm. a, a way of inhibiting a gene that could be passed down through the generations. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the discovery was that they that antisense exists and can be used for that. Or did they know this that before? This is a discovery that they could... Um, manipulate secondary metabolism in a plant mm-hmm. using antisense um, and that it could be passed down from generations. Mm-hmm. And the third one is um, functioning hemoglobin genes in non-nodulating plants by HGT. So, Yoram, do you remember what HGT is? A horizontal gene transfer. Yeah. Um, so, basically, hemoglobin is found in plants um, but mostly it was only before the lovely year of 1988 in which Yoram and Tegan came to this planet um, it was only found in nitrogen fixing nodules so it was based on these symbiotic symbiotic associations which Yoram was talking Mm -hmm. about in his papers Um, and if you look at these hemoglobins that there are in plants they're actually very structurally similar to animal hemoglobins so which is the compound like the the blood the thing that gives the color to blood, right? The red color. That's yeah, hemoglobin. Um, it's the, yes. The, the thing that binds to oxygen the, and makes the, it the red. One, the, the iron containing, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, exactly, which is, yeah. In, I don't know if it gives it, it's, yeah, it does, it does it give it the color? I think so. Yes, I think it's, it's the, color the defining. From the iron binding, it makes it red. Um, yeah. I, again, I don't care how <laughs> humans work as it's really obvious, <laughs> but I think, yeah, I guess iron makes it red. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's this idea that, hey, this could be where they come from. Um, so in this paper, they were looking at non, um, non-nodulating plants. They use a species Trema tomentosa. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found that Trema tomentosa didn't have the, the hemoglobin. Um, and then they did some more analysis where they were comparing these animal ones and the the... Um, plant ones and they said hey look there's very strong evidence that there's nothing else in the plant lineage and the most likely is that there was at some point a uh, horizontal genome transfer event not necessarily from the animals themselves it could also be from a common ancestor which um, Mm -hmm. transferred both like so in this case they were saying it's most likely to be something in the nodules to these um bacteria that are in the the nodules as opposed to it's not coming from a cat to a plant it's coming from bacteria the ultimate source um Mm -hmm. yeah but via horizontal genome transfer um and they say that this has allowed the special role of the nitrogen fixing nodules to um evolve very rapidly like so it kind of came out of nowhere and suddenly we have this um, nitrogen fixing nodules that then diversified um and made this very specialized um thing which mm-hmm. as you mentioned in your paper is is really a cool thing to be able to do because yeah, yeah. most organisms that are plants and animals cannot fix nitrogen and that's 
a very important failing that we all have. So one, two or three, I can go back quickly. One was the, the very deep corolla so that the flowers have to be as long as the, mm-hmm. the tongue of the insect. Number two was that you can use antisense RNA to knock out a enzyme basically and um, change the color of flowers and this can be passed on to the next generation. So pretty petunias. And number three was the discovery that hemoglobin genes, which are found mostly in animals, but also in certain plants, are probably arising by horizontal gene transfer um, via, hypothetically, these bacteria in the nodules. Oh, yeah. This, this, now, I, now I know how you felt. Um, <laughs> all of them seem... Anything seem, could be a lie, Yoram. No, yeah. All, all of them seem very plausible because I've heard at least parts of each of these stories like i know like starting from the back um i i think i remember that like these these nodules they sometimes have this distinct red color in in the roots because of the hemoglobin in there um, because i think it's involved in the nitrogen fixation because the nitrogen fixation itself is very oxygen sensitive and it plays some role in that so i think it is it's true that hemoglobin is found in the nodules um, and it's made in the bacteria or in the plants there i don't know and i find this like the the horizontal gene transfer theory or like the 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 idea strange in that respect because like if it would be a common ancestor you would find it in more places um so or and if it would jump from animal to bacterium and then to plant would also be weird so there i'm 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 cautious so that's on my my fake list um the antisense story for the petunia is something that seems like a very common straightforward story i can't did you check that the things that you made up didn't actually exist like I did that with my stories to be sure that I don't like make <laughs> make up something and like oh, absolutely fake and then somebody can can tell me no there's actually a paper where they did exactly that what you because you switched something around and then it's, it's actually true. I would say arguably it probably didn't happen in 1988. <laughs> <even if it laughs> did. <laughs> like maybe I, I didn't check. Um, okay. I did this very last minute and I also only read the abstracts. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I also did only that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. 1988 is the one thing where I would also be curious because like the whole, like only in the eighties was only when we got PCR and in the nineties we got the, the transgenic technologies, but it, could have been one of these like pioneer strange initial works where they maybe introduced um like physical antisense rna um that they made in bacteria and isolated and then put them into the the plant cells and then uh through some like reverse transcription effect uh, got them sort of integrated into the genome so i can imagine that they had some like weird pioneer stuff but it sounds like something that's pretty early and then finally the the first story it rings a bell to me that I've seen like when it comes to sort of the, the arms race and evolution that I've seen a, a graphic where you had like these extending parts of the flowers with the insects and sort of every generation the insects try to get like a longer, like they don't try, like they get favored if they have a longer tongue. And so they evolve to have like longer, um, longer tongues. And then the plants then have a selection pressure to even extend further their flower parts. And I think that I've seen something like this um, somewhere. So I would, I would say, I think that is the true one. 
but I could I could see how the others are true. I'm not 100% certain. Um, I think that's that's my Wait, sorry. What was what was your thing? I I should say one of mine is fake and two of mine are true. Ah, okay. So there's one fake in there. I okay. <laughs> I did not realize we were supposed to make two no, no. fake ones. Okay, if, if I did not know the rules. If two are true or now and I, I, I was hoping I could just dismiss both the antisense RNA and the horizontal gene transfer um, as something, um, yeah, as both of them are fake. If I now have to decide between the two, which one is true? I just try to, to think, like, how would you even define, like, horizontal gene transfer in the eight, late 80s when you don't have sequenced genomes? where you can search and do like phylogenetic trees and all of these things that we do nowadays. Yeah, I, I think I think the two true stories are the co-evolution of insects and, and flowers and the antisense story in Petunia. These, these are true and it's fake that uh, the hemoglobin comes from a horizontal gene transfer over like from animals in some way either in the past or like in the more recent past yes you're absolutely correct <laughs> and you had everything right so um yeah just to go through it quickly i chose the first one because i love these arm races i love this idea of plants trying to outsmart insects and insects trying to outsmart um, plants and in every single scenario i think it's it's really beautiful um one of the favorite my favorite things we've done on the blog which went out really poorly actually in hindsight i should have known about that so in australia um there's a a group of plants of of peas which create a a poison which all of the native mammals and marsupials are okay with because in the evolutionary arm race the plant got more poisonous and the animal just learned how to deal with the poison mm -hmm. um but as it turns out this poison is really effective on introduced animals like rabbits and cats and foxes so in australia we now use 1080 which is an um synthetic version of the poison originally produced by the plant but it's basically the same thing as what the plant originally um, produced as something that is poisoning cats and rabbits and foxes in australia as it turns out our audience probably like yoram chose to understand plants because they don't like to talk about animal <laughs> murder which is understandable but i just find this fascinating the way plants are constantly i mean plants can't run away you guys so they're constantly trying to like work out ways to either like not get eaten or in this case to trick some other guy into helping them have sex because they can't even manage the sex by themselves like Honestly, brilliant. Okay, yeah. but that was completely true. And in the experiment, yeah, the, the scientists basically um, just made the um, corolla artificially shorter and they found that the insects then um, were lazy and it, it made the plant suffer. Um, number two was indeed true. Um, Antisense was used to inhibit this um, chalcone synthase gene. It wasn't the first use of antisense, um, even in a eukaryote. So antisense is originally coming from bacteria. And the first use of antisense in a eukaryote was in 1984. So just mm -hmm. four years previously. Um, but I think this is quite a famous example because it made pretty plants. So um, I, again, this, this is behind a paywall. I can't see it and I... I'm not willing to pay nine pounds. Um, but I saw another article which had some really nice pictures of like speckled petunias, um, which is, it's always, guys, if you're trying a new technology, 
go for the visual effects because it's just going to make a more beautiful paper if you're trying to do something. Um, and yeah, so the the third paper, I said the title correctly, except I added the HGT. So functioning hemoglobin genes in non-nodulating plants. Up until this stage, um, hemoglobin genes had only been found in nodulating plants. And in this case, they did study another species, um, which was non-nodulating. Um, and it's called Trematomontosa. And this is important because I think it's a um, relative of nodulating species, if I'm not wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found that this species does, in fact, hemo- have hemoglobin genes in it. And also that it's similar to those of nodulating plant species. And this argues that there wasn't horizontal gene transfer to get the the gene, that probably there's a common ancestor Mm-hmm. with these hemoglobin genes. So just because we don't necessarily um, see the nodulation or, or, or the, the effect, it doesn't mean that the gene doesn't exist or that the gene didn't exist in an ancestral form. So they there was the idea that it was horizontal gene transfer, but their proof here was that it was unlikely to be. And as Yoram stated, it would have been quite difficult to prove that it was horizontal genome transfer um, because you would have to kind of prove an absence Mm-hmm. in other species which was much more difficult at that time without the sequencing technology we yeah. have now so nowadays it's not so hard but in that case it was easy for them to prove oh look it is in a relative that doesn't nodulate as opposed to saying oh look it's not in anything it's only in these bacteria so it must or in these animals it must have come from from yeah. there yeah. yeah but yeah that cool. was the three yes hot <laughs> <laughs> No, you got it right. You did really well. That was amazing. Yeah, but still, like when when you first read them, I was like, no, all of them are true. These are all papers I can totally imagine existing. <laughs> yeah, they they were plausible. So well, because, I think yeah. we both have a good career in faking research studies. This what I <laughs> at least abstract. We would be much more successful. Yeah, <laughs> guys, faking science is wrong. Like, yeah, don't, don't do, do that. it. No, it will always come back to you. So, do you have a question? I do have a question. Um, this is a bit of a more a broader thing. So maybe you could suggest a couple of different um, mm-hmm. methods. So it's basically coping strategies for PhDs. How do you stay sane in such a challenging and competitive environment? So maybe oh. Yoram, you could suggest just a couple of things that helped. Yeah, I think what what helped me where or was a support network of people that I liked whose opinion I valued more than the opinion of superiors and who helped me in sort of getting a different perspective on things Um, because you will always hopefully not always always but very often you will have a discrepancy between people above you uh, what they expect from you and what you can actually achieve and I don't mean from me like your your skills but just from what is achievable in your in your research because it's often controlled by many factors and this is a big cause for frustration down to like downright um, um, mental issues and so on and what really helped me was getting people close like luckily i had people like that in my lab like like you um and others as it's well me. <laughs> um yeah get tegan get get tegan to help you that, <laughs> that, that's that's one thing but like people who can give you get you we're very expensive <laughs> who can give you a different perspective or a different um approach to things uh, people you can uh, get new ideas from um and general like people who who help you find positive things or find your own path through sometimes like 
a very dense forest of negative stuff around you, like negative results, negative people, um, negative experience, like being scooped and things like that. All of this happens, unfortunately, way too often. Um, uh, and so, yeah, get, try to find the right people. And this is something that's, I, I, I understand that it's not something that everybody can do, but nowadays with with the internet, with social media and so on, I think if you don't find anybody like that in your immediate surroundings, you can maybe find support over Twitter or other places um, where you can find people in similar situations where you can maybe like set up a monthly Skype call with them and chat about stuff just to sort of reflect on things. Um, this, this, I think, could help. So that was actually also my first thing. My first statement was bond, like bond with people who are around you. And again, as Yoram says, this doesn't have to be your superior. This doesn't have to be with somebody in the same lab, but like do like try to form a community and be aware as you do that. Look at the people, be aware of who is helping you or not just helping you, but helping other people because the best thing in a lab is not that people pay each other back, but that they're paying it forward. So one really good example is that like um, when I was there, I was one of the few native speakers um, in a group that didn't have many native English speakers. So I was doing a lot of kind of English editing work um, and that's something I could do. And I didn't expect that I would get the same service back from people because I don't necessarily need things translated into Spanish. But maybe I need help with a gel or maybe somebody else needs help with their German and your arm can be helping them. And this is an example of how there's certain people in the group who are facilitating a group network. And I think be aware of who those people are and also be aware of the people who aren't helping and who are out for themselves because they they cost you energy and they can they can also be disappointing. That was but yeah. but bonding with people is the first thing. And then Related to that, make sure that you do have bonds with people outside of your work as well and that you have this, I mean, balance, they call it, but, you know, have a non-science hobby. Be aware that a, a lot of the, the 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 mythology that exists in science during your PhD is that your PhD is not your job. It's your calling. It's your religion. It's, it's your devotion. Um, and if this is the case, I would reconsider, honestly. I think that's not going to be a, a sustainable thing um overall yeah. and then the other one i would say is inform yourself um about what your job is and what you want it to be and also what the challenges are so for example one thing yara mentioned is yeah your your boss might have expectations but talk to other people who've done their phd don't just hear from from your boss um think about what science is especially experimental science look up there's research that shows that jobs where you have no control over the relationship between input and output which is what experimental research is they're the most frustrating um, jobs so although you can't change that fact if you're an experimental researcher being aware of the fact that, that your lack of control is a thing that is it's real it's not just you that can be helpful i think and then also if you're any kind of minority i would also look into that and inform yourself about that because i think that can be extra stressful um in a lot of cases if you are an experimental researcher and doing your phd you are outside of your native environment so you're in a foreign country but you might also be any kind of minority in stem which is not necessarily that um supportive so again be aware of these biases because that will help you realize that 
it's not necessarily you it, it can be a flaw in the system and then also as your said seek out people who can be supportive of you so other people who have um your experience and can be supportive in that experience i think that's um that's a really big thing yeah and then like my final thing is question everything like your job as a scientist above everything else is to be questioning things so when your boss tells you to do something you question why you do that um when you continue doing your phd you question if that's what you really want to be doing um if your physical health or your mental health starts to suffer you question why and if this will change and honestly if it will not you you change because nothing is worth your mental and physical health but you should always be asking yourself why you're doing things and also what you want to achieve and that's not just about getting experimental output but that's also about um what you want science to be so there were a lot of choices I made in my PhD, which were not necessarily better for a selfish Tegan who could have got her own stuff done with less time, but they represented what I wanted to see in the science. So like I can spend hours helping a friend like study for their defense or do this. And I think that's what science will be. So I think you should also be questioning that um, Mm -hmm. in every way. Like, yeah, but definitely question your boss. Like, I think it depends on the society, but in a lot of societies, there's a hierarchy where the guy at the top gets to make the decisions. And it is true that he's paying you in, in some cases. Actually, not in all cases. I actually had my own grant and a lot of people do bring their own money. So he might not even be paying you, um, which is also gives you a bit of power. Um, keep that in mind. Um, but yeah, just because he says something doesn't mean, or, or she says something <laughs> doesn't mean that you have to do it. And you should always be questioning why you're doing things because everybody has their own prejudice and biases themselves so your boss is not necessarily right um yeah that's that's kind of like ultimately i think if you want to be a scientist you need to be questioning things and again that all goes they all kind of wrap together and kind of feedback on each other because i think a lot of the narrative as a scientist is that you shouldn't be questioning whether you want to be a scientist and for me, I could enjoy being a scientist the most or an active researcher the most while I was questioning and finding that I still wanted to do it. And then at one stage, I started questioning it and said, hmm, maybe I want to try something else. And then I moved. Yeah. Um, and in both ways, that helped me because when I when I questioned and I said, yes, I do want this, that made me want to be at my job more even when times were tough. So... Yeah. And yeah. this is something that I, the, the one thing I want to add, I absolutely agree with the things that you said. The one thing I want to add is um, it's okay to, to move away. And I think it's even a very important step to eventually like leave your first job. And for many people, a PhD is one of the very first um, proper professional experiences. Before that, you come, you come from uni, um, you had a very long education. You might have had like smaller jobs on the side, but this is like your first proper career job. And it's important to leave this first job eventually just to show you that things are very different in other places and you can take the good things from your first job and combine them with the good things from your second job and so on uh, i know that from like i had friends who are not in research but they were actually designers uh, and they also have a tendency to hire at like an agency after university and then they sort of cling to that job and don't want to let go and even if it's an sort of abusive job uh they think no uh like it's it's my job it was hard to get it after university um but then they leave and they realize how much better everything can be so um it's okay to leave your phd project and 
do something else, go into industry or do another PhD project elsewhere with a different lab, with a different supervisor, um, with different mm. conditions around you. All of these things are absolutely valid options. You're not locked in into your PhD. And even if you're like two years in and you realize it's, it's just not working out for you and you're suffering, it's okay to leave and transition to like a different PhD lab or something that's not a PhD or whatever works out for you. And um, depending yeah. on the discipline you're in i know that sometimes there's even sort of alternative science careers that are not based on a phd where you are with sort of your master's degree or the equivalent of there of um, working in research doing active research but without going through like the full phd thing yeah and this is also again part of questioning things and informing yourself like be aware that if you are doing your phd and you're in that academic research environment almost everyone you're interacting with has chosen to stay in that environment so if they're telling you it's not possible to leave they're not the best people to tell you that yeah. you can talk to other people as well yes they do have an opinion of what it means to stay in academia but yeah. they don't have the other opinion so make sure you diversify it's it's one of the biases we talked about it's a survivor bias yeah like they survive yeah. the system and therefore they tell you it's okay like it's fine you can you can survive it too um and you don't see all of the voices of the people who left and so there's another thing like just a small thing if there's any career talks at your institute where people who are outside of academia come and give career talks go to that listen to them even if you're not interested in their particular career it gives you a different point of view that there is life outside of academia and i have really strong personal experience for this so um i guess what it's now six months ago i decided to change jobs i'm now working as an editor instead of as a um postdoc researcher which i was doing for the last what i don't know three years before that after i finished my phd i lost all feeling and for time <laughs> i had a lot of people tell me that i was making a mistake or that it was a shame i was leaving i had a very well-meaning but long argument with somebody who tried to convince me to stay in academia after I had already made my choices um and I think a lot of a lot of people believed I made the wrong choice and probably a lot of people still do believe I made the wrong choice but this in itself is also not enough so even if somebody at the top of the game is telling you but you could be a good scientist this is a job where you could be good at yeah, it's true. I could be a good scientist, but I could also be a really good like aerospace engineer. And I could also be really good at doing Japanese floral arrangements. Like as it turns out, I, I contain multitudes. I can do many different things. So don't also stay in the job just because somebody's telling you you're good at the job. Stay in the job if that's the job you want to do. And for me, I got to the stage where, yeah, I could do the job, but I wasn't sure that that was the job I wanted to be doing. And like honestly at the end of the day that's what is the most important not that i can be great at something but that i can be happy while doing something so but again like if you want to stay in research stay in research but no it's because you want it and then yeah. because you do want it you'll do it so much better and you'll you'll love it and i did i loved it for many years because i wanted to be there yeah i i sometimes miss it uh and uh, sometimes i don't miss it um it's really um yeah, I, I'm. I'm definitely not saying that you sh you you must not work in academia, uh, but you have to be sure that it's the thing that you want to do. I know people who are very happy in academia, and for them, it's the perfect career. And for for me, it wasn't. And I also know people who have left academia and gone back to academia. Yeah. Which, in case somebody's telling you you can never go back, like you have to stay in academia because if you try something else, you're out of the club forever. That's also a bit of bullshit, guys. Yeah. Like there are risks, but. There's not an absolute like that that really exists. <laughs> yes. 
Okay. Okay, that was long. Yoram, <laughs> play, play the game again. <laughs> I should embarrass two. myself by not getting it. Um, the first story of uh, okay. the first story that I have is called "Variation and Continuity." Photosynthesis provides power to the plant, and photorespiration takes a cut and reduces the overall e efficiency. R reducing uh -huh. photorespiration is a major goal in plant research. In the search okay. of a very efficient Arabidopsis ecotype, researchers compared two dozen different variants and grouped them into winter and spring ecotypes. Then they analyzed their photosynthetic capacity and the photorespiration rates. While the photosynthetic rates varied greatly between the ecotypes, the photorespiratory rate remained fairly constant across the different ecotypes. Equotypes. The researchers explained this effect with the strong conservation of the Rubisco subunits across the winter and spring ecotypes, which leads to a very similar rate of photorespiration. So they essentially say everything like the there's there's more variation in the things related to the photosynthetic electron transport chain then there is a variation in the rubisco stuff and therefore the photorespiration is fairly constant across these ecotypes while um, there are some changes in their efficiency uh, for the photosynthetic part, so the take-up of the energy. That's the first story. The second story is called A Summer Memory. Epigenetic modifications of the DNA encode information without altering the genetic code. Methylation is one of the most common types. Researchers have looked at the role of epigenetic changes in poplar, a tree, and could find that the trees remember the stress of the summer and induce epigenetic changes in their genetic code. Especially stress-related genes are epigenetically changed at the end of summer in the shoot apical meristem. The researchers suggest that the epigenetic memory helps with acclimation to growth conditions. And finally, um, super strong and super awake. Spinach is loved by researchers for providing easy access to its chloroplasts. As we all know, the chloroplast is a little efficient biorefinery that is often used to create active biological compounds. Caffeine is a plant product that is not only used to stay highly alert, it is also part of certain migraine and headache medications. In this study, researchers used isolated chloroplasts from spinach to introduce the genes required for caffeine biosynthesis. They isolated the relevant genes from Coffea arabica and Camellia sinensis and introduced them to isolated chloroplasts. The researchers observed a strong accumulation of caffeine. The next step is to stably introduce the pathway into crop plants and to extract large amounts of caffeine. So, first story um, is that among Arabidopsis ecotypes, there is a big variation in the photosynthetic rates, but the photorespiratory rates are fairly stable. Um, the second story is that trees remember the summer um, due to epigenetic changes to their DNA, especially in stress-related genes. And the third story is that researchers put the biosynthesis pathways for caffeine from coffee and tea plants and introduced them to spinach chloroplasts that they isolated. Sorry, one is true and two of them are fake? Yeah, only one of them is true. Hmm. <laughs> okay, so I think the spinach one is bullshit. Mm -hmm. um, I... I hope it's bullshit because I would really like to know that if this is true, I would have heard about that because I am iron deficient. So I would like to have a kind of <laughs> source of caffeine that is also spinach. I eat a ton of spinach. You can't imagine how much spinach I eat. Um, 
If it's true, I'm upset that I don't have access to it, so I'm going to assume it's fake because otherwise I mean, somebody uh, up there is screwing me over. They only did that to the chloroplast, to the isolated chloroplast. It's not stable yet. They put it in isolated chloroplast? Yeah. They did sort of transient expression in the chloroplasts. What does that even mean, transient expression in the chloroplasts? They isolate the chloroplast and then they put the DNA with the genes uh, and like introduce them to the chloroplast so that they're expressed. Um, but what? then. <laughs> what what sorry <laughs> sorry are the genes integrated into the the chloroplast no, genome no, or no. not they're not integrated they're just like they have you to just put the, the dna, DNA in. yeah dna in and then it's translated and made in the in the chloroplast oh they could absolutely have done that yeah well so now i mean I, I think it's true but i'm angry about the public funding situation <laughs> i think that's absolutely possible um so how many is true and how many are fake? <laughs> Two are fake. One is true. Uh, um, so the popular the story was basically that the trees remember summer by making epigenetic changes in their shoot apical meristem. Yeah. I kind of you're gonna have to say that story again because I kind of zoned out because <laughs> honestly, heat stress memory makes me angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but this is not uh, i mean yeah it's the summer yeah it's sort of heat stress um so what they did yeah. is they looked at the epigenetic changes in poplar populations um after uh, after summer uh and so at the end of summer they they sampled uh, the trees and from i think they did it over several years if i remember correctly and found um, regions that were differentially methylated, is what they say. So you have changes in the methylation pattern, so changes in the epigenetic uh, modifications. And um, they observed that every summer uh, um, going into fall. And they, they see that in specifically in these stress-related regions um, where they see epigenetic changes. So... I mean, these changes can sometimes induce gene expression and sometimes silence and gene sorry, expression. So what's their point? The point is that the, the epigenetic changes happen and then they, they hang around for another... Yeah, they, they sort of they learn from the summer, sort of, or remember the summer, and that helps them then to adjust for, for the next year. So I guess the idea is... For the next have, summer. Yeah, for the next summer, that you have, like, creeping up changes in climate... Um, that, like every summer is like a de degree warmer for some reason, like we have now. Um, the poplar trees sort of remember that from previous summers and remember, ah, it was quite hot. So next summer I come prepared and I will like have the genes that protect me from heat be a little bit more active. And then they remember that mm -hmm. again for the next summer. I think that's the idea here. Uh-huh. And then the other one is that they looked at all these different Arabidopsis ecotypes and they found that there was a lot of variation in the photosynthetic rate. Or some by which variation. You mean the, by which you mean the electron transport rate. Yeah. Specifically, not the dark reactions. Yeah, not the dark reactions. They separated the two. They separated the efficiency of pumping electrons and everything and the efficiency of fixing that into carbon. Okay, so there's a lot of difference in the photosynthetic rate in different... Yeah. Oh, well, in, the, in like the pumping. Not, not even no, the dark the electron transport rate. The photorespiratory rate. So they have the electron transport rate and carbon fixation and the photorespiratory rate. And their argument is that Rubisco is constant. Yeah. So they, they see like the two subunits the of Rubisco are more conserved. Like 
you have between just within Arabidopsis, just between the ecotypes, the Rubisco subunits are not that much changed. I think that's fake. So which one is true? I think the the annoying oh oh oh. oh. So I think like the heat stress one makes me angry, <laughs> but um, <laughs> like. I, I can't see anything wrong with it because I'm just like I'm just mad at it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to anybody who works on this, but your point is I basically didn't like think of that when when writing these things down that you have like an, an inherent bias. I don't understand. I could I have abused this more. <laughs> I don't understand what the argument. The argument is that they get hot and then they make changes and therefore they're better at getting hot. Yeah, of course they do. Like I don't understand how that's a story. I mean, before like I get hot and I change my clothing and then I'm I'm not as hot the next time it gets hot. Like But the correct. question is like do you like on what level do you remember that? And I mean that's the, the annoying thing about heat stress memory. Like where is it? Is it like some proteins that get accumulated and degrade only over twelve months periods? So okay, you have so so from from what I do know from heat stress memory, there is epigenetic stuff at play. That's definitely something that yeah. is happening with, with heat stress memory. So this can be absolutely true. However, um, yeah, I'm going to say the, the, the heat stress memory thing is true. I want to believe that some jerks put caffeine into spinach, but I think, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we've made a really big mistake because my only way to deal with this, because I don't know, is to insult things because I'm panicking. <laughs> um, I think the heat stress memory is true. The heat stress memory is true and it sucks. And I think Rubisco is variable. I don't think the photosynthetic rate is variable. Um I think Rubisco is variable. I know that Rubisco varies a lot between different species, so like tobacco and and ZMAs, but I don't know if it would be enough to vary it from um, from ecotype to ecotype. But yeah, so I, I think so, like I don't think it's true that the Rubisco is constant. So um, the first story is fake. Um, okay. So the real story. What's fake about it though? The real story says photorespiration differs among Arabidopsis taliana ecotypes and is correlated with photosynthesis. So okay. not only do you have photorespiration that's different between these ecotypes, it's also correlated to photosynthesis. So these two are linked and not unlinked, <laughs> like I said in, in my. Well, fake that makes story. a lot more sense. Yeah, that's so, good. <laughs> yes. I'm okay so, with that one being. I'm okay with that one being fake. Yeah. Uh, it it would have been a little bit ridiculous if you. Had, had like the photosynthetic chain is like pumping electrons at very different rates but rubisco is always doing the same thing and they have I to mean, like it depends so on how they're they're measuring it right if they're saying like the the optimal like the the maximum under these conditions it could still be true because um like some of these ecotypes are growing in like completely different environments so if they're then doing like under you know 10,000 micro einsteins and this other little robot office is like but i've never seen 10,000 micro einsteins i would die under that normal like yeah. Then I can imagine, depending on the way you measured this, it could be... Yeah. So micro-Einstein, by the way, is a measurement for light oh, intensity. intensity. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Uh, okay, so the trees. Tell me about the trees. The summer memory is true. Uh, as you said, like um, it's a story by uh, Legac et al. Um, it's called uh, uh, Winter Dormant Shoot Apical Meristem in Poplar Trees Shows Environmental Epigenetic Memory. Journal of Experimental Botany in 2018. Um, and yeah, it's pretty much what, what we discussed. They um, measured trees, um, poplar trees growing in fields, uh, looked at differentially methylated regions and characterized them across the, the years, found 161 uh, of these regions um, in three independent experiments. And they 
target abiotic stress and developmental response genes. So yeah, stress really things they remember. They they get the, during the summer they sort of accumulate all of these changes that prime them for the next summer to fine tune their stress and developmental response genes. Yeah, so I, I want to make a little statement here. The reason I hate this field, I think it's actually really cool that there's epigenetic changes. I think this is like an awesome thing. Um, and I think it's logical and actually that's that's a cool thing. It makes sense. It makes sense that the plant would, would prime itself. What is problematic is that the, the term used is always memory and some people don't like using that term memory. They think it's it's not right to use the term memory because memory means that a condition has completely gone away and been forgotten and then it comes back again. And they would argue that the epigenetic changes themselves are permanent and therefore that doesn't constitute memory because the changes never go away. Mm-hmm. But what is going away is the freaking heat. So the heat is going away and the plant remembers heat the stimuli. So you can argue it's memory then. But in in my old work there was people who were working on um this this heat stress and every time it came up there would be this semantic <laughs> debate about whether we're allowed to use the word memory um yeah. or not and frankly i don't care use the word priming use the word memory it actually doesn't matter as long as the people who are doing the research define their term and if you want to say this is too like um anthropomorphic or whatever there was the term it's like it's too like giving people like traits to a plant yeah a plant doesn't have a brain so it's not memorizing things the same as we are but yeah yeah ah, i mean so, we, we touched so, on this like uh, in, the, in the last episode right the the right right words and how people can be very pedantic about them i just want to say yeah. like we use memory in other non-biological contexts absolutely fine like the memory of a, a battery like, of a rechargeable yeah, battery memory sticks like yeah. it's a memory stick it's not remember it's not it going away and keeping like so Anyway, my point is, scientifically, this is actually quite cool because it, it makes sense that plants can adapt. It actually makes more sense that plants can adapt to their environment than animals can and can prepare for things because animals can go away when the environment is bad. But it makes much more plants, uh, much more sense that plants who have to hang around when it gets hot again are going to keep themselves a little sticky note. Not a memory, but a sticky note to know next time it gets hot. Um, yeah. So the science itself is cool, but this this topic drives me, <laughs> as you can as you can tell from the last fifteen minutes of me ranting. This makes me mad, and I'm not mad at the scientists, and I'm not mad at the science. I'm mad at the people involved. <laughs> and finally, the third spinach! story about spinach is also fake and it's completely made up. Um, it it doesn't really make sense to isolate chloroplasts. Um, I just didn't. That thought was like, why would you put it like you? There's so many you're ways you can chloroplasts. <laughs> they're gonna die, and then you're putting it. You're not even stably transforming. But I don't even know if you can. St- like, how would you even stably transform an isolated chloroplast unless you wanted to then try and do like? I was just. I, I mean, don't understand. Yeah. No, you can't regenerate from a chloroplast. No, you can uh, regenerate from individual cells. No, from a cells. cell you could. Yeah. 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 Um, so it's it's completely made up. The one thing that I got a little bit of inspiration from is that some people um, put. So I, I started writing this up, and I thought like, what is a cool uh, bio pathway to randomly put into the chloroplast? Um, and then I thought of caffeine, and I looked up where people have. Uh, uh, put that pathway actually and some researchers put caffeine biosynthesis in yeast um, and yeah. they used and that's where I got the the idea about the relevant genes from coffee and tea plants because they did that they isolated mm-hmm. the two key enzymes from these two species and put them in yeast and managed to make very small amounts of caffeine in yeast in fairness if anybody did that I would absolutely write a blog post on it 
like that's just a thing like it, yeah. it's sexy science but it's also something that's like why would you pay somebody to okay <laughs> sure yeah do you yeah. have another question maybe one we can or maybe we try to be shorter on this one <laughs> we had two very long explanations before um yeah i guess this is kind of similar it's how do you feel about moving around for the research job how how does that how did that impact you not at all i'm very privileged i like i wasn't born in berlin but for like since 94 i pretty much just lived here i i went to like different places of like like different universities and institute within the area here but i, I didn't have to move and also for my current jobs i don't really see how i would have to move for them so i can't really say anything yeah so i i would say this is a major problem with science at the moment um it in the kind of science that we do it matters a lot where you're born mm -hmm. um because there's so many resources involved in getting high impact factor science which lets you keep your career that basically if you're born in the right country you have a huge advantage and yeah yoram and i were lucky enough to be born in the right country um, even then Yoram does have an advantage over me because he was born in Europe so for me to stay in research one of the big and even to, with my current job one of the big questions I will always be asking is do I want to be in Europe slash the US like in the global north where there are a lot of job opportunities um, or do I want to be where I grew up and where my family is and I can't have both whereas Yoram can because he simply had the luck of being born in Europe mm -hmm. and on top of that being mobile has often been considered as an objective criteria that can be measured to show how um, how active a scientist has been. But it's often ignores certain things. So the first thing it ignores, if, if you're born in the right place to start with, it's much easier because you can stay, for example, Yoram, he can do his... Um, masters in in germany a phd in germany then do a short two-year postdoc in the us or somewhere else and then come back to germany on the other hand with me which again is a really privileged situation i was in australia for a masters i then already moved to germany from the phd but that would not be considered as mobility and then for a postdoc i would have to consider moving again where i would now be away from both my home australia and where i was for for seven years or five years um seven mm -hmm. years berlin so it's again extra moving so there's like already this thing where like depending on where you start in you have huge advantages yeah on top of that there's a lot of class privilege involved so i was able to physically move myself spending literally thousands of dollars from australia to europe for a phd which was only possible because i came from a middle class family and had savings this is an insane privilege and also a privilege of my country and, and, and everything, my skin color. I have a lot of problems with the the way there we have um, unequal resources in science across the globe and the fact that we pretend that this is not the case. It's, mm -hmm. it's kind of this, um, this idea of blindness, like, oh, you all have opportunities. No, we have opportunities, but they are absolutely not equal. Or um, this idea of merit meritocracy, that like you are yeah. at the position because you deserve it, because you have the skills and it's just your skill set. It's just the things that you have done that got you where you are and this is pretty much I, I don't think any I don't know of any place where this is actually true but I mostly dislike that people pretend that mobility is something that's accessible to everyone it's just it's just completely yeah. it's completely yeah. not yeah yeah 
Absolutely agree. So let's do the final round of fake, fake truth or true oh, fake, another fake. Round. Final round. Um, so far, we both got a point. I can't really get more points, but now is the part where you can go ahead and get more points than I have. <laughs> um, well, this is a tiebreaker then. Like, oh no! Actually, uh, the first round went to me. Like, no, we actually have. You can. Yeah, you have two points, and I have only one point, so true. I can draw or lose. Um, the first story that I have is called natural disinfectant spray. Proteins are great molecules. They do many things. Some of them are structural, <laughs> others have enzymatic activity, and some are used to store energy. Antimicrobial peptides, however, are here to kill. They interfere with microbial metabolism to the point that the microbes can't survive. Engineering the antimicrobial peptides to be expressed all over the plant is challenging, however, as they also disturb membrane processes. Researchers have turned to, uh, have turned to link antimicrobial peptides to proteins found in the pollen exine, which is the pollen cell wall. They managed to coat Arabidopsis pollen in antimicrobial peptides that remain active and can reduce growth of Pseudomonas syringae. The researchers explain that the potential application is the coating of cedar pollen with antimicrobial peptides. The cedar trees can be planted around crop fields and shaken to release the antimicrobial payload. That's the first story. Um, the second story is Hindenburg plant. During photosynthesis, water is split into one oxygen atom and two protons. The protons form a gradient from the lumen, to the thylo uh, from the lumen of the thylakoids to the stroma, and the energetic potential of this gradient is used by ATP synthase to convert it to chemical energy. However, during certain highlight conditions, the lumen can't accumulate too many protons, and uh, I can. The lumen can accumulate too many proteins and overload the system. A number of molecular safeguards avoids overacidification of the lumen, which is like having too many proteins in there. Researchers set out to harvest that potential. They inserted microelectrodes into detached tobacco leaves and illuminated them with highlight. By providing electrons, electrons through the electrode, they could convert enough protons to hydrogen to be able to measure it in the gas phase above the leaf. While the study only produced insignificant amounts of hydrogen, it helped to advance the industrial production of hydrogen from plants. And finally, uh, the third story is called Algal Power. We talk a lot about the importance of carbon fixation during photosynthesis and carboxylation. However, the photosynthetic electron transport uh, transports, you guessed it, electrons, which could be harnessed to produce electrical current. This team of researchers isolated thylakoid membranes from cyanobacteria and plants and attached them to microelectrodes. Upon illumination, they could measure a tiny current in cyanobacteria, but not in plants. They also found a mutation in the cyanobacterium that boosted the current production. However, it didn't help to introduce the same mutation to plants. The authors con concluded that there is still a long way to go to harvest electrical currents from plants. So first one is um, coating pollen with antimicrobial peptides so that they can, when the pollen is dispersed, they can kill bacteria. Um, the second one is producing hydrogen from thylakoid membranes by putting electrons there that then make hydrogen gas and the third one is putting little electrodes into cyanobacteria so that the electrons that are made to or that are moved during photosynthesis are then jumping onto the electrodes and can be measured as a current uh -huh. yeah three very engineering heavy um sort of and one of them talks. is true one of them is true two of them are false 
Mm -hmm. I, I saw you just, shake your head already at one of them. Yeah. I just, I just, I, I don't understand what the point of that would be. <laughs> um, the first one. Um, <laughs> I, so, <laughs> yes, antimicrobial peptides are a thing. Yes, they interfere with membranes. Um, can you express them on the outside of a pollen cell wall? I'm not sure. Um, there are proteins and peptides that can be um, targeted to the cell wall. That could be quite difficult to do. I'm not sure how well it's known how things are targeted to kind of go out but stay stuck on. Um, I think they, I they fused it to sort of known cell wall proteins uh -huh. um, that are coating, uh, uh, like that are on the cell wall already, and they fuse these uh, peptides to the to them, and it would they, yeah. they remained active enough to work. I just don't understand the idea of having pollen which worked against Pseudomonas in Sedar, like that just doesn't seem at all practical or feasible to me. That's like, that's what really like, okay, I can see you can link it to a pollen cell wall. I can see them doing that because they can't work out how to put it anywhere else in the plant because it doesn't mm -hmm. like nicely go other places. Um, like if you put it on the actual cell wall, you've got other cells that are there in the way. So that's not really helpful. Um, getting it on the epidermal cell wall is kind of tricky. Yeah, I can imagine them putting it on pollen because like it works there and it's hard to put it other places. But the the end aim of, of making setter, like firstly, who's transforming setter? And secondly, the idea of having like a, a gas of pollen is bizarre. And I think it's a combination of um, like trying to upsell the, the story, having like an outlook of how, how that is useful. And there's actually some some videos and some things that seen, especially with cedar trees, that if you shake them with like heavy machinery, they release all of the pollen at once and you have like this big cloud of pollen. And I think yeah, the idea is to have them near. That's not at all helpful. And putting like antimicrobial yeah. peptides on those is, is not a good idea. Um, because, I mean, also they're, they're not specific for Pseudomonas. Yeah, and also, they, do you even want to kill all the Pseudomonas? Probably not. Um, do you want to kill everything underneath the, the tree? It's No. That sounds like a bad idea. It could be true, but it's a bad idea. So I think that <laughs> one's fake. Um, so then the other option is that we're using microelectrodes to convert, to make hydrogen gas, basically, mm -hmm. using... I don't understand that. I don't understand um, electricity. So you're getting the hydrogen inside the stroma... So the protons and you're electrocuting them and making hydrogen gas? Yeah, I mean, at the first step of photosynthesis, you take away the electrons from, from water um, and then you have the two protons in the lumen and the electrons being pumped. And yeah. they do sort of the opposite. They pump in the electrons and they jump to the protons and they f come together and form hydrogen gas. Um under sort of highlight conditions when the plant anyway would like to get rid of some protons so it's not if they would just do it under all conditions it would sort of mess up the the proton gradient and the plant can't survive anymore so they only do that under conditions when there is enough protons in there that some of them can be useful for uh for gas production for hydrogen production that sounds silly to me more silly than putting electrodes into cyanobacteria and then using the cyanobacteria essentially like a battery, you shine light on it and then you inst uh, take the electrons that are pumped across the photosynthetic chain and then they jump onto your electrode and you can measure them outside of the, the cyanobacterium, which is a third story. 
I just don't know anything about like how all this electricity works. Like I, I can imagine, like, c- can you measure such a tiny current? Like, it just seems very unrealistic that you could have such a tiny, what is it called? Amplometer? Amp- uh, ampere. Amp- I think it's in a range of like microamperes that they um, measure. How do you even measure? No, it must be smaller than that even, like femtoamperes. Um converting to hydrogen gas okay so i so one of these two should be true theoretically because i really don't like the set thing oh my goodness is the set thing true um <laughs> let me think microelectrodes can con- i don't really understand the microelectrode the, the hydrogen gas thing you're just it's going the reverse <sighs> way by electrocuting things like yeah inside the cell i guess it could be done but why why would it's, we it's, do that it's microamperes uh, uh, in one of the two stories um and it's microamperes because they calculated up to the square centimeter size so probably they measured on a smaller uh, area yeah yeah okay um and the point of making this into hydrogen gas i think i think the algae one is also false and i think that elector microelectrodes is unfortunately true but i don't understand the, the why one, we the, should do the this. hydrogen gas i think the hydrogen gas is true okay um so let's go through them the first one you you're right it's um absolute bs um the antimicrobial peptides all of that exists it's true i just saw a video where somebody bumped into like a tree and you had like this cloud yeah and that's it was, like, what made me think it was <laughs> false because i've seen you've talked about that video before and i was like oh he loves that cloud that video and also one of our friends works on antimicrobial peptides yeah that so was the other like, thing um <laughs> i linked these two thing uh, memories and um yeah it it doesn't it doesn't make sense it. Um, it doesn't make sense it would kill like if it would work it would kill all of the bacteria but only the ones that are surface exposed so like probably it like, just doesn't make any sense <laughs> okay so let's sense. move on to the next one um, i mean i can imagine people trying to sell their project like that i know certain people who would but like the yeah um the hindenburg plant the hydrogen production unfortunately is also false it's also fake i made that up it's sort of inspired by artificial photosynthesis where they try to produce hydrogen from sunlight with mimicking um enzymes uh, in in plants um but as far as i know nobody has done it the reverse way um of trying to make hydrogen directly in plants i guess because it would mess up there's no reason why you would yeah, it would probably mess up the system. It would probably be really hard to get your electrodes efficiently inserted in enough thylakoid spaces that you can actually deliver the electrons to the right spot and not just pump electrons anywhere in the plant. So it doesn't really make much sense. Probably won't happen, which means that the third story that you can create electricity from algae is actually true. It's called photosynthetic membranes of cystis or plants convert sunlight to photocurrent through different pathways due to different architectures. From uh, Pinhasi et al., the electrical current from, from thylakoids is true. They isolated the membrane stacks where photosynthesis happens, put them on electrodes, and then measured a very tiny current. And then they found that there is a mutation that can increase that current a little bit in cyanobacteria, but they didn't manage to do the same in plants. And that probably because to due to a different architecture. They also identify where the electrons come from. So it's the electron donor to from photosystem 2. Um that's giving it in the cyanobacteria to to the electrode um, and this is just a different molecule in plants and that's why it doesn't work in plants um, mm-hmm. so yeah that's so technically there is a way to 
grow cyanobacteria on electrodes and then um, harvest some current from them, but it's probably not efficient enough that we see this in an industrial application yet. I mean, this story is from 2015. Um, this is still like, yeah, there could be people working on a very amazing like cyanobacteria battery right now, um, but this is one of the studies exploring that. So, which means that I got um, all of the points, not all of them. All the points they are. Um. Um, which means I have bragging rights. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Yay! Okay, so yeah, that uh, was the final yeah. story. Um, which brings us to the end of this 50th episode. It, it is a little bit longer than our previous episodes. We'll probably go back to the regular um, talking about recent science and much less about fake science. Um, and uh, in the future so uh, yeah you can find us on instagram and facebook at plants and pipettes you can find us on twitter at plants pipettes we also have a website www.plantsandpipettes.com and you can rate us on itunes um if you liked the how we answered your questions um feel free to send us more questions be it um about the life in academia the life outside academia be it about plant science maybe also like human science which we learned that tegan loves talking about human biology so maybe send us your favorite human biology <laughs> question yeah mm -hmm. um send us questions we will answer them until then see you later opening closing music carana by philip cross goodbye <laughs> goodbye